Welcome to the New Zealand's Radio. I'm Edward White. Over the past few years, Hong Kong has been redefined by its young people. In the 2014 Umbrella Movement, student leaders, including Joshua Wong, led hundreds of thousands in protest against the Chinese government. Since then, the tension between the city's pro-democratic young and the establishment which is loyal to Beijing has remained palpable. At times it's even boiled over with spurts of violence and civil disobedience. And all the while there are these signs that China will continue to intervene and erode the autonomy promised to the Hong Kong people under the one country, two systems model. Just this past week, young politicians and activists again faced off with pro-Beijing thugs and police as China's president, Xi Jinping, made a rare three-day trip to the city. Ben Bland is the South China correspondent with the Financial Times. His new book is Generation HK, Seeking Identity in China's Shadow. In the book he introduces readers to this new generation of Hong Kongers. These are people who have for the most part grown up after the 1997 handover, and as Ben argues, have formed a whole new identity, and it's something that appears to be of major concern to Beijing. The book however is not limited to the political activists. There are also underground filmmakers, multi-millionaire supertutors, and even the children of the city's business tycoons. I caught up with Ben in Hong Kong, and I started by asking him why, when he first arrived there in early 2015, he was afraid he had actually missed the story. Well, as, as you know, as a foreign correspondent, you thrive on drama, you want there to be big news events that are exciting to cover, that people in the rest of the world care about. And I came, perhaps um, unfortunately, just at the end of the Occupy movement. So you know, if I'd come a few months earlier, there would have been 100,000 people occupying the streets of Hong Kong, demanding democracy from Beijing. It was all kicking off. No one knew what was going to happen. But I, I came once that was all over. Um, the activists, the democracy protesters were pretty despondent. They'd failed to get any reform at all from Beijing. Uh, I think the government was, Hong Kong government was feeling quite confident that it had managed the problem. So there was just an air of gloom, I would say. Um, so I thought, well, I'm based here, but my job is covering southern China. I imagine there wouldn't be too much to write about Hong Kong politics. And then how quickly did that change? How quickly did you realise that there was a whole other story developing and that it was something that it might actually become a, a, a book? I think it started to dawn on me after the, the sort of the initial shock of moving to a new place where you know, everything's somewhat confusing. After a couple of months when I started to speak to more people and get a handle, I, I sensed that things were moving. Um, I think there was a, a C.Y. Lung speech in which he started warning students not to talk about Hong Kong independence which seemed really weird because no one really was talking about it. And then as soon as he started mentioning this thread of independence, the students did start talking about it. And it was clear that, you know, but with Beijing not being willing to give these democratic reforms to Hong Kong, um, there had to be another way for people to challenge back. And that wouldn't be asking for something because they'd asked and it'd been refused. So they had to challenge, in fact, you know, the very basis of Beijing's rule. And I think that started to build, you know, once I'd been here a few months and I sensed you know, that things weren't quite right and that, you know, the pressures weren't going away. And so you've written a book about people, basically, people from Hong Kong and, and ma- mostly people that are born post-1990 with a few exceptions, but a kind of millennial age bracket, which you've termed Generation HK or Generation Hong Kong. Can we go back to the beginning of these people's lives and talk a little bit about 
what their experience is growing up and you've got a, a nice quote in your book saying Hong Kong is a stressful place it all starts in kindergarten so can we start there what is that like for them well this is one of the world's most crowded cities so I think you know from day one people are living on top of each other something like 200,000 people here live in what they call subdivided homes where you know, it's about 10 square meters space um, you know per person or even even less than that these are tiny spaces people are living on top of each other and it's a very competitive society there's that kind of east asian tiger parent competitive spirit so you know parents expect a lot of their children and it's a, it's a really tough society so just getting into kindergarten you'll find that parents have to send their kids for extra tuition. Um, so yeah, it starts in kindergarten and then all the way through primary school, secondary school, people are going to extra classes to pass interviews, to pass tests, to get to the next level. And I, I, from my point of view, I think the choke point is university because I think there's only about 20% of Hong Kongers who get a chance to get a government-funded place at one of the universities here, which is probably a lot lower than many developed Western countries. So from that choke point... If you don't get a place at university, unless you're rich and you can afford to go overseas, you're kind of screwed, right? You're not going to get a good job. You won't be able to work for a bank, a law firm, be a doctor. The kind of things that Chinese Hong Kong families really expect their kids to do. So to get into university, you have to be in a good high school. To get into a good high school, you have to be in a good primary school and all the way down. And so there are actually good kindergartens to get into and bad ones. And parents are worrying about that, I suppose, before the kids are even born. Exactly. So, you know, I think a doctor I interviewed in the book told me that you know, people go with the ultrasound um, to go and try and reserve the place at, at kindergarten to show, you know, we've got a real child on the way. So, yeah, there's extreme competition and there's just a shortage of places in some respects, partly because of the high costs of doing anything in Hong Kong, because real estate is so expensive here. Um, so it just means there's a shortage of, of schools. Um, it's something that affects expats who move here. But the bigger problem is really for Hong Kongers who have nowhere else to go. They live in this you know, special administrative region of 7 million people and that's it. And so from out of this crazy competitive educational system, there are these, uh, we would call them bushy buns in, in Taiwan. I'm not sure what they are in, in uh, Cantonese, but after school tuition, um, tutoring systems and educational institutions. Can you talk a little bit about Billy Ung and the celebrity tutors and how you came across these guys? Well, I came across them because there was a, a story broke in the local media, which, you know, if we're honest, as foreign correspondents, is often a great source of stories. Um, one, um, one of these schools was trying to poach a teacher from another, another school, and they put an advert in the Hong Kong press saying they're willing to pay the equivalent of something like 15 million US dollars to this guy if he would switch schools. He was the best paid of the tutors called, a guy called YY Lam. Uh, who earns around, I think, three to five million US dollars a year. So I just thought this was a fascinating story. It made me look into the idea of why these schools even exist, which got me onto this question of sort of pressure in the educational system. But I think there's another side to it, which is in a way the entrepreneurial spirit um, of the young Hong Kongers, because most of the teachers themselves are in their early 20s, maybe early 30s, and they are trying to find a way to make money out of this very messed up, pressured system. Um, so in the case of Billy Ung, who's an English teacher, I thought, 
I'll go along to one of his classes. He's an English teacher. You know, I should make an admission I don't speak Cantonese. Um, so I thought, oh, an English teacher, his classes will be in English. I can go along and I'll understand. So I got on the, the MTR, the metro here, and trundled off for about an hour to one of the far suburbs um, in Hong Kong, which is really nearer to Shenzhen than it is to Hong Kong Island, where we are now, and went to this class. And it was a very bizarre experience. You go in as a security guard. They give ticket numbers to the students to stop them fighting for the desks at the front. Uh, and then this guy just sort of barks away on a huge loudspeaker for about two hours, almost all in Cantonese, apart from when he would say the odd phrase in English, which sort of like the magic phrases you need to repeat to get marks in your test. So these guys aren't really teaching a love for the subject. They're not giving any added value. They're purely giving sort of exam cheats, if you like. And how much are parents paying to get their kids into these classes? It's, it's not that expensive. I mean, it's, it's perhaps... Um, I think it's about 180 Hong Kong dollars a session, which is maybe 25 US dollars. So it's it's a fair amount of money, but it's not that much. But these guys make their money because their classes are broadcast to thousands of people. So the government, because it's so worried about these aggressive tutor centers, has put a lot of restrictions on them. So they're only allowed to charge monthly tuition to stop them ripping off parents. And each physical class is limited to 30 people so they get around that by broadcasting it and because it's not about the love of learning english or traditional chinese literature or whatever the course is it doesn't matter if the kids are just watching on a computer because it's just about getting exam tips and it also reflects i guess like you say the the rote learning system and the idea that you're just studying to pass exams rather than trying to develop any love of learning or anything Exactly. I mean, it's, in, on the, in one hand, I'd say it's, it's quite innovative. On the other hand, it, it's a bit sad. Although I would say there's some differentiation. So Yy Lam, this other um, tutor who I, I met, who's a, a Chinese teacher, he's much more of an inspirational figure, I think. And a lot of young Hong Kongers look up to him because he wasn't doing very well at one point when he was a, a student in high school and then somehow managed to get through and get good results. And he has a much more... Um, interesting way of teaching he's much more engaging and he's actually built his own brand he's got youtube videos with hundreds of thousands of views he launched his own magazine so he's managed to sort of really build on the celebrity culture uh, in a way that some of the others don't they really purely focus on being able to read previous year's exam papers and predict what's going to come up next year a lot of conversations or articles or books on hong kong focuses a lot on the protest leaders documentary about joshua wong's now on netflix he's kind of like this international superstar and your book does touch on these but i thought one thing that was really interesting about it is that you you also went and found found the rich kids which is like this class in hong kong which does exist and people talk about it always or almost always in a sort of pejorative sense but you've gone about it slightly differently can you talk about your process of just trying to reach through to the the sons and daughters of uh, Hong Kong's richest tycoons? Well, I I think as you mentioned earlier, I've been a journalist in Asia for for nine years now. I've worked in Indonesia, Vietnam, Singapore, um, Hong Kong, mainland China too. And yeah, especially working for a financial newspaper as I do, we always want to get to these big business figures who dominate politics and the economy, business in the whole of Asia, right, where it's all about family business. But I think everywhere you go, they're quite hard to get access to. And when you do get access to them, having meaningful conversations is is tough. But I found it supremely difficult in Hong Kong. Um, I think when I came here, I was slightly naive. I thought it's a former British colony. People say it's the most open place in China. Um, I imagined I'd be able to just fire off emails and these people would be willing to meet, at least off the record, 
in the first place to have introductory meetings and have reasonable discussions. But what I soon found is that even when I could get those kind of off-the-record meetings, people would just say the same inane things they would say in public. So yeah, if you ask them what they think, property tycoons, what they think about housing prices, they'll just say, even in private, they'll say, oh, it's the government's fault, they just need to give more land, and we're happy to build the, the cheap housing for them if they just give us cheap land, but the government sell the price so high, that's because of the market, there's nothing we can do. So it was really, really tough, but I wanted to hear from the establishment because people in Hong Kong, as they do in many other global cities, complain so much about this elite that controls everything. So I wanted to get to them. I kept trying and had a few more interesting meetings on the way. And eventually I found one guy who was actually pretty influential um, called Lam Ming Wai, who was willing to talk to me. I mean, he's a second generation property billionaire who also happened to be on the head of the government's youth commission, which obviously, as you can imagine, in Hong Kong isn't actually very popular with the youth uh, but he was willing to have you know, a real discussion with me, which really took me quite by surprise, I'd say. Mm. I mean, you, in the sort of lead into that chapter, you say the problem with detached and self-serving billionaires is that they're detached and self-serving, which is a nice line. But is that, does that reflect the young, rich Hong Kongers that you met? Pretty much. I think, you know, it's, I think it's hard everywhere in China, and Hong Kong is, is part of China. You know, the politics are so important to business and people are so scared about what they can and can't say. Uh, I mean, particularly in an internet age where everything is there forever, but also in a Chinese context, the Chinese government, the Chinese secret police, the Chinese you know, anti-corruption investigators are very good at you know, controlling information, searching for information. So people are really scared. And one funny thing about Hong Kong is, I think people have much, because it's not fully part of the communist system, people have a much less clear idea of what they can and can't say. I mean, if you, to, if you were to go and meet Wang Jinlin or Jack Ma, these famous mainland Chinese tycoons, they pretty much know where the line is. They can push the boundaries in terms of criticising government policy on social issues or the economy or even, to an extent, politics, because they know what the red lines are. But here in Hong Kong, where you know, the connections between the Communist Party and the tycoons are much more shady, they've managed through this what Beijing calls the liaison office here, and it's all done kind of under the table in dark rooms by you know, text messages. So people don't quite know what they can say. So I think that makes them much more cautious in a way than they probably need to be. One thing you can always notice in Hong Kong, regardless of where you are, basically, is the level of inequality, and it's, that was certainly displayed well in your book in terms of just your meetings with these people and you know Hong Kong's private clubs and things like that. How much do you think the economic conditions play into the minds and the identity that's being formed in the in the activist movement and people like Joshua Wong or Nathan Law? I think Hong Kong has always in you know the last 50 60 years been known as a kind of gritty place where you know the rich meets the poor it's it, it's a melting pot right east and west is the cliche um, authoritarian and whether under the British or under the Chinese versus democratic values um, so I think there's always been that sense of Hong Kong being a, a place where people are pushed up against each other, in a way a bit like London or New York to a certain extent. Um, I think what's different here is the link between politics and the economics. So I think there are many places in the world where young people are frustrated by high housing prices, um, small increases in graduate salaries. I mean, it's the same in Taipei and mm. in London. Um, I think what's different here is the connection with politics. So people have you know very limited means at which to push back they don't have an official voice in the system because there's no full democracy here so they don't have 
their say. So I think it, it plays a role, but I, I actually tend to think that people have overestimated the importance of economic issues alone. So this is the response that you got from some of the wealthy people that you talked to that uh, if only housing prices were cheaper, there'd be less protesters, or if the impact of Chinese immigration uh, was sort of dampened a little bit, people would be less likely to be out in the streets. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. It's a very sort of materialistic, you know, probably somehow, some way Marxist way to, to look at things. You know, everything's driven by economics. And the classic example that people say is, oh, we would be like Singapore, there'd be no protests if only we had cheap public housing for 80%, 90% of the public like Singapore does with its, its HDB program. Uh, but I just, I was never that convinced by that argument. It seemed too simplistic to me. It didn't seem to explain the risks that people were willing to take um, and simply when I spoke to, to young people about why they were protesting, you know, e- the economic factors were there, but they weren't the only issues. What, what were the key issues? What do you think was, you know, in the post-Occupy movement years or days, what were the, when they had basically failed, you know, they hadn't really made much gain, but they had got international attention and they had created a movement and they had that sort of power. What were the things that were still driving them at that point? My key argument is that the, the overlooked area is really identity. So yeah, many people say Occupy and what's happened since is about economics, as we were just discussing. The other argument is it's all about politics. Right? They really want democracy. They really value you know, having universal suffrage and free speech. And conversely, it's a reaction against you know, China putting the squeeze on Hong Kong's freedoms. I think those, that's all true. But I think there's this question of identity, which is really at the heart of a lot of what's happened. And the funny thing is... Um, Throughout the book, everyone I met, which was you know, dozens and dozens of people, I asked them all, what does it mean to you to be a Hong Konger? And very few people had a clear answer. It's a very hard question, but in a way, that's not surprising. I mean, if I were to ask you what it means to be a New Zealander, or you were to ask me what it means to be a Londoner, it's quite hard to explain, but people feel it. And I think that was what was going on here, that people felt a new connection with Hong Kong and with each other that was different from their parents, and that's what made them think there was something worth fighting for. And, and how, in your mind, how much of that feeling is built on the sense of uh, we're not Chinese, we're, we're something different? Well, I think identity is always defined against others, um, whether you're, you know, you're a New Zealander because you're not Australian, you're, you're Taiwanese because you're not mainland Chinese or Chinese. I think this is a common way that people think about who they are. So I think it's natural, given that Hong Kong's special status, its different values were enshrined in you know, the one country, two systems arrangement under which Hong Kong is governed through China. So there was always that natural tension there. And I just think it's really grown and grown. And what you've had with Generation HK, as I call them, is a group of people who've just come of age in a Hong Kong that wasn't part of the British Empire as it was anymore and it wasn't really part of mainland China and they were distant from mainland China so they just felt they were above all Hong Kongers and that's inevitably in one country two systems you're going to be defined against the mainland because everything that makes Hong Kong different whether it's you know respect for freedom of speech wanting democracy a sense that people here follow the rules whether it's the Cantonese language or the use of traditional rather than simplified characters all those things are the inverse of either what's happening in the mainland or at least people's imagination in Hong Kong of what's happening in the mainland, which isn't necessarily the same thing. 
and how different is it or where does it differ from the generation above them or before them so their parents I think there's a number of key differences firstly their parents would have grown up in the British system so I think they already had a different view but I think the other important point is that their parents and grandparents have much stronger connections to mainland China. I think it wasn't until the 1980s that more than half of the population of Hong Kong was actually born in Hong Kong. And previous generations had mostly been refugees from, from China, fleeing you know, war, poverty, famine, the Cultural Revolution, whatever it may be. So they had a much stronger connection to China. I think this generation doesn't, doesn't have that. I mean, when you talk to people and ask them, what do you think about the British it's meaningless to them if you ask Nathan Law, Joshua Wong, Lam Ming Wai, whoever. It, it bears no meaning for their life. And equally, when you ask them about mainland China, it's, it's not important to who they think they are. They, because Hong Kong, in a way, was so free in the early days and China didn't meddle much after 1997, there was nothing to make them think they were ever really Chinese citizens, at least in the way that the Communist Party of China and the Chinese government would want them to think they are. I mean, we can use the term Hong Kong identity, but if you look at the different political groups, even within the sort of young opposition camp, you know, you you talk to various different politicians in, in your book, and or for your book, and they come at these questions and they come at their, um, their political aims and means from different angles. So you have Joshua and Nathan Law and... Uh, Agnes Chow who are all sort of willing to I guess play by the rules to some extent you know they're practicing a little bit of civil disobedience but not much um, and then you have Andy Chan or Chan Holton from the Hong Kong National Party who's a pro-independence guy and is sort of talking about taking to the streets so how unified is this thing of Hong Kong independence this concept do you think? I think all identities are obviously plural. I mean, there are common values and then people, there are things that people think are different. But I I do think actually across large swathes of Hong Kong, the common values are stronger than the differences. And the truth even for members of the business and political elite is not, not many of them really want to live in the mainland. They really love speaking Cantonese, their language. Um, They value traditional characters, they value the separate system in Hong Kong. And if you talk about imagined community, which is Benedict Anderson's idea of what makes a nation, they do feel as one. You know, they feel problems, a problem here is a problem for all Hong Kongers. So I think there are unifying themes, even across, reaching across to the establishment in Hong Kong. Obviously, they wouldn't quite admit it in the same way, but I think it's there. However, of course there are quite big political differences. And this has really been a really fast-moving situation. So I think during Occupy, you know, Joshua Wong would have been a sort of scary, radical end. Well, he's been completely outflanked by people like you know, Andy, Andy Chan Ho Tin or Edward Lung. So now Joshua Wong is the kind of guy, you know, a nice Hong Kong girl would bring back to their parents. They think, oh, what a, what a nice chap. He's so middle-of-the-road and moderate. For sure, you go ahead and marry him. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, the sort of cuddly Christian Democrats and the Chinese flag-burning, cigarette-smoking, mask-wearing, quasi-anarchists. Um, but I, So there are definitely tensions there, and one of the problems they face is that they've seemed to spend in the last year or so as much time fighting with each other as they have fighting against the Hong Kong government or the Beijing government. And in your book, obviously you've focused on really interesting people with interesting stories. 
Do you think these things, these uh, observations or conclusions that you've drawn can be uh, laid across the rest of Hong Kong society? Is there a silent majority that just doesn't care? I think it's an interesting question for all journalists or writers. We all go out to look for interesting voices. I think in any country, 90% of the people, 90% of the time, are not interested in politics or what's going on. They just want to look after their family, get on with their daily life, etc. So there's always a question of how representative our stories are. But of course, we try to make them accurate and representative by looking at data where we can by gauging the size of things so you know during occupy there was something like a hundred thousand people who came out on the streets in a civil disobedience movement in 2003 in a protest when china tried to force the hong kong government to bring in these sort of vague and controversial national security laws there were hundreds of thousands of people on the streets and if we look at the legislative council election in in hong kong last year at least for the democratic portion of it something like 20% of people voted for candidates or parties who are supporting either independence or some form of vaguely defined self-determination, whether that be a referendum for Hong Kong or just a general sense that Hong Kongers should decide everything about Hong Kong's future status, not Beijing. So I think there's evidence that a significant portion of the population has become more radical. I think if we look at identity surveys too, uh, the Hong Kong University does a very good and long-running um, opinion poll on who Hong Kongers feel they are, and particularly among the younger group. One of the most um, surprising statistics is that since 97, the number of Hong Kongers who say they're broadly Chinese in the 18 to 29 category has fallen from over 30% to just 3% this year. Meanwhile, those who describe themselves as broadly a Hong Konger has gone from about 60 to 94%. So I think the numbers seem to suggest that there has been real movement in Hong Kong. But of course, I'm not saying that the people I've spoken to represent a statistical sample of Hong Kong. But I think when you talk to influential people, it's important because what they say and do reflects on how other Hong Kongers see their city and where it's going. So I think it's important to reflect what those people think. And I'd like to talk a little bit about China's response, not getting too much into the weeds of the sort of legal or political moves but just as a as a general kind of sentiment and in your book you talk to the uh the filmmakers behind the film 10 years which was shut down in hong kong after a brief sort of run you say the struggles of the filmmakers are harbinger of how the rise of china will change the rules of the game globally can you talk a little bit about about that process of the film getting shut down and what you mean by that statement yeah so 10 Years was an extremely low-budget film uh, made effectively on a, on a voluntary basis by a bunch of directors. It, it was just The idea was simply to imagine what Hong Kong would be like in 10 years' time. So it was a collection of, of short films. Um, I don't think it was meant to be po- particularly political at the start. It was more an artistic project. And Ung Kalung, the, the director behind it, yeah, that's, that's how he saw it. He didn't see it as making a political statement. He just thought it was an interesting art project, effectively. So off they went. They made these short films, a number of which turned out to be quite bleak imaginations of Hong Kong's future, but somehow quite accurate. So one of the films featured um, a group of people who were going around removing sensitive books from Hong Kong bookstores. 
Uh, and then obviously around the same time, we had these booksellers who were selling works critical of China, who were kidnapped from, from Hong Kong and from Thailand and taken to the mainland. Uh, and there were other films that imagined, you know, Cantonese being put under pressure by the Chinese government, taxi drivers forced to speak Mandarin, which again, it really um, spoke to Hong Kong's fears about how things were going. So the film, which had a low budget, had a brief release, suddenly became really popular, was selling out, doing very well, and then, poof, it disappeared from the cinemas. And even though people wanted to see it, there were no longer any cinemas in Hong Kong willing to show it. Later, it won um, Film of the Year at the Hong Kong Film Awards, and some Chinese media churlishly removed it from the list of award winners when they republished those lists. During the live broadcast, which I think one of the Chinese um, web, one of the Chinese um, social media platforms had taken, the live feed of the award ceremony, they cut it when it came to 10 years. So it obviously unnerved China. It obviously connected with Hong Kongers in a very visceral way. And the, those two things are clearly linked. And, and what about in terms of China's reaction to it? Well, I think... The fact that it was that disappeared in Hong Kong obviously most likely reflects self-censorship rather than overt censorship, although we don't know because, as I mentioned earlier, the liaison office here operates in the shadows. But people who run businesses in Hong Kong and in the whole world are really worried about what the Chinese government think. Why? Because the Chinese government is the biggest market for almost any sizable company anywhere in the world, from, from New Zealand to the US to the UK. So... If you're worried about doing business in China, displaying films that have sensitive content is not a good way to ensure you'll be able to you know, open branches of your cinema in, in China or that you'll be able to work with Chinese companies to get them to invest in your studio or whatever it may be. And this is a really important point because we've seen big Chinese media companies spending billions of dollars buying up Hollywood studios. They're really keen to expand China's soft power influence. And Hollywood now, as it has been in the past when it you know, collaborated to make sure films could get into Nazi Germany, is keen to do whatever it takes to, to get the Chinese money. So I think we're going to see across the whole world a changing of the way people talk about sensitive issues for China, whether it's Hong Kong's future or Hong Kong independence, whether it's Tibet, whether it's the status of dissidents. You know, that debate will change in the public sphere as universities, football clubs, um, film studios worry that you know what they do or say or what their staff actors do will affect their ability to to get access to this huge Chinese market. You've written about this recently for the Financial Times when you, uh, I think, got into the degree of which countries are willing to stand up to China. And I think you talked about the Australian example, which was interesting, which was that countries, how much of a sort of export-orientated country and how much of their GDP was then tied to exports was actually really important. I know this isn't really covered in your book, but it sort of links back to the general point here. Can you just explain explain that for us? There's been a long history um, of people wanting to get into China. It's actually not a new thing. You know, for hundreds of years, people, business people all over the world have looked to this huge nation of now 1.4 billion people but before smaller and yet still massive with this idea of if I can only get 0.01% of the Chinese market I'll be rich forever. So that the China market dream has long been there but the Chinese government has long been aware of that and used that to its own advantage. So there's a long history of these 
Chinese boycotts, sometimes led by Chinese people, sometimes led by the Chinese state, sometimes sometimes by a mix of the two, um, you know, against Japan in the 1920s and 30s, against the British at various times, against the, the US in 1905, against these very um, racist immigration laws targeting Chinese in, in the US. So there's long been this kind of pressure that China's used. And, you know, I think it's become increasingly successful at using it as its economy has transformed in the last 20 years to be much bigger, but also much more globally connected. Um, China's become adept at using this pressure um, on companies, but then reflect, making sure that's reflected in the public sphere. So recently we have this example in South Korea where they were trying to deploy this missile, U.S. missile defense system to protect themselves against North Korea. China doesn't like it because it feels that the, the radars that are part of the system can be used to spy on China. So it started making life really difficult for Korean companies in China. That got back to the Korean public. And although you can argue how much influence the boycott had in economic terms, it's undeniable that in political terms... Koreans who are already facing a really tense situation with the North were scared that China would be able to really damage their economic growth, damage job creation. And it seems to have had some impact in you know, the Korean election and debate because we now have a Korean leader who's potentially talking about postponing or rolling back this program. So I think this Chinese pressure and the perception of it is really important. The, the flip side to that, though, and I think you, we've talked about it a little bit in the Hong Kong context but it's also true in, in, in Korea and in Taiwan as well is that this this new sense of identity is is there and it's there to stay it seems particularly among young people in your book you say that over the eight years reporting from the, over, over your eight years reporting from Asia and Singapore China Myanmar and Vietnam you've seen how these activists like these people that have this sense of identity are ground down can you talk a little bit about your experience in other countries and how this may be, what lessons can be learned in terms of what's happening in Hong Kong? Well, in a way, I've living in a number of the places I have, I've learned to quite admire the um, effectiveness of you know, systems of social control or authoritarian governments build. Many of them look to the Stasi, the East German secret police, as the model. Um, and the heart of their system was something that they called erosion, uh, and the idea was basically where you have dissident groups, activists, journalists who are causing trouble, you want to erode their relationships with other people, erode their self-confidence, erode their ability to get a job, to rent a house, to find a girlfriend or boyfriend or get married. And I think that's at the heart of what a lot of repressive governments do all around the world. So. When I was in Vietnam, for example, you would see how the secret police were very good at finding people's weak spots, which are normally relationships and money. Um, they would collect information on everyone, and they would just use spreading mix of rumors, lies, and truth to destroy people's reputation. So I'll give you an example from Vietnam. Um, there was a group of young Vietnamese state media journalists who used to meet up to talk about you know, the issues of the day, to give each other support. I mean, like in mainland China, it's really hard being a journalist in these countries because there's a lot of censorship. But a lot of these young people want to do the best job they can. And to try and break up this group, um, the secret police would occasionally call up one of these people and tell them, you're not allowed to go to the meetings anymore because, you know, we think it's dangerous for you. It's not safe. These people are very dangerous people. Then they'd tell 
people in the group who are still there, that person is talking to us, they've told us that you're really dangerous. So it's, it's a brilliant way of sowing distrust among people and breaking apart their relationships and making it really hard to organise, which is an important point because the essence of a Leninist Marxist system, which they have in Vietnam, as in China, is that no one should be allowed to organise apart from the state. So the secret police's main goal is to stop anyone else from being able to form these bonds of trust and form any organization that's outside the control of the party state machine. And you write about something perhaps similar, but we're not sure in terms of uh, Agnes Chow, so she's one of the leaders of Demisisto, one of Joshua Wong's sort of colleagues. And she was, it seems, her family was lent on, right? But we don't know, well, you don't say explicitly in the book, but, you know, do you have an idea around that? Like, what are we implying? Well, she hasn't been fully clear about what happened, but I think what she said is that people in her family were pressured, um, that life would get difficult for them. I mean, I imagine, you know, it could have been directly from the liaison office, but most likely they were pressuring people in the Hong Kong establishment. Yeah, so it could have been anything from you know, pressuring people about business to their ability to rent or buy housing, whatever it may be. But, you know, Hong Kong is a relatively small place. Um, there are lots of ways to put pressure on people. Um, and I think the fact is, for a lot of these young activists, um, they have given up a lot. There's no way that any Hong Kong government department would employ any of these people any Chinese company, which are increasingly influential in Hong Kong, but more importantly, even multinational companies. If we look back to Occupy, the big four accounting firms were pressured to put out these adverts in the paper condemning the movement, and lots of their young staff were really unhappy about it. They don't want you know, an accounting firm to be involved in either supporting or condemning a political movement. But I think increasingly, you know, as we were talking about before, with the rising power of the Chinese government, they're not willing to let people stay in the middle. There's a sense of you're either with us and you're going to defend us against this threat or, or you're against us. So I think it's, it's really hard and it doesn't necessarily need overt pressure because just the fact that people won't consider employing you is a pretty big problem if you're a 20-year-old looking at the rest of your life ahead of you. Stepping back, there, there would be a realist kind of view that any idea of Hong Kong independence is a joke in a sense that there is no chance that that is going to happen so activists that are fighting for that are fighting a a lost cause however there is perhaps a view that China has something to gain from keeping Hong Kong as um, an example that it can point to as a success that the one China two systems uh, formula can work even though it is an experiment do you think that the generation HK would be willing to compromise on these points at all? Are they willing to live in a China where they have freedom of speech, where they have uh, the right to protest, even though what they can protest about may be slightly curtailed? But is that so different from living in the US? Well, I think as to your question about what's realistic, I would, the definition of activist as opposed to politician is probably fighting for a lost cause. Um, and you know, activists are fighting for a lost cause until they're not. And then suddenly they're those in power and everything's changed. I mean, look at Nigel Farage and Brexit. He was, for many years, even a couple of decades, fighting for a lost cause. He tried to be an MP many times and failed. And he managed to succeed. So I think it's very hard to say. If you look at the independence movements in Asia, whether it's you know Mahatma Gandhi, Lee Kuan Yew... Um, Sukarno in Indonesia, all these people were at many times fighting for a lost cause. Of course, there are still many activists out there whose causes will always be lost. So just because you're 
forlorn doesn't mean you will be successful, but I think it's hard to rule out what's going to happen in future. I think a lot of the young people I spoke to didn't start out being against China. You know, if you look, some of them were born in China. I mean, Nathan Law spent the first six years of his life in China. Um, if you look at the things that people like Joshua Wong have been saying, they've changed somewhat over the years. They started out just calling for democracy within Hong Kong as part of China. They weren't really against it, but when they realized that the Communist Party of China was never going to allow full democracy in Hong Kong, they knew that asking for it was pointless. They had to ask for something more. They had to challenge the foundation of the system. Now, I think it's important here to understand the position of the Chinese government and why they don't want to do that. Right? I think we have to see it you know, as independent observers from their perspective, which is that yeah, they're obviously always worried about threats to their power, Economic growth in China has been slowing, so the sort of economic leg to their legitimacy is still there. You know, still delivered really great economic growth. People's lives are still getting better, but it's not as good as it once was. Um, so they're there as defenders of the unity of China, and they have to deal with these threats. And if you think about were they ever to give full democracy to Hong Kong, what could they say to the people of Shanghai, the people of Guangzhou, the people of Beijing? Why are you willing to give it to them? And not to us. And if you read Communist Party papers, they talk about the greatest threat to party control being peaceful evolution, which is sort of the backdooring in of democratic means, which is pretty much exactly what you'd have if you allowed a demo full democratization of Hong Kong. So I think it's important to see how they see it before you know you look at you know what Hong Kong is wanting. The two things are different. I think it's it's understandable that young Hong Kongers want one thing, and it's also in a way understandable why Beijing doesn't want to give it to them. But you could argue it that it's not really something that Hong Kong is trying to get. It's something that they're trying to keep. They already have this, right? Well, I think the, that after the handover in 1997, there were already a lot of contradictions. So Hong Kong had this mini constitution called the Basic Law, which does guarantee various freedoms and also promises them a path to choosing their leader by universal suffrage, albeit with an appropriate nominating committee, whatever that means. But it also demands that they bring in national security laws and, and other things too. So I think sometimes the Hong Kongers are picking and choosing. They see the parts of it that they like, which are freedoms, democracy, that's all well and good. They don't like to focus on the other parts of it, like national security laws. Um, and I also think there's an inherent, there are many inherent contradictions in it um, so I'm not sure that they ever had those full freedoms. They certainly didn't under British rule, which is important to point out. So in a way, it's, it's more about fighting for what they want rather than maintaining what they had. Of course, when it comes to the freedoms in particular, they are there. But as I said, so is the national security law. So there's an innate tension there. And as you said, of course, many societies have limits on free speech um, in some circumstances, but I think the Chinese view of limits on free speech mm. is somewhat different from, say, you know, most Western democracies. And China would, and the Hong Kong government would be pretty explicit about that too. They often say we don't want Western-style democracy in Hong Kong. To go back, I think what I was trying to get at with this question though is the the idea of the Hong Kong identity and what these young people believe in, and whether it's associated or, or it's definitely associated with the idea of greater freedoms and, and the things that they that they want that they're aspirational targets. But at the same time, the reality is that that's something that you know full democracy is just not going to is something that is difficult to foresee happening. So I'm just wondering your view on how. Uh, 
at what point are they willing to compromise or are they are they just are they radicals are they going to go all out for the rest of their lives well i think they were willing to compromise before but china wasn't willing to give them the compromise they wanted so I, so now they've become more radical as a result of the failure to win that but i think ultimately people yeah, there's a very small number of people who call for full independence. There's probably a bigger number of people who want it but are scared to say it or think it could never happen, so it's pointless saying it, even though they like the idea of it. Um, so I don't think it's about that. I think people would be happy to be technically part of China if they had the freedoms they want, if they were able to choose their own leaders and had freedom of speech. But I just think that in itself is was always going to be an impossibility, to my mind, within China as it is now. Okay, if People didn't know how China was going to go. There was this dream in Hong Kong that after 1997, Hong Kong would lead to a sort of political opening of China and the two would merge in some sort of happy middle ground where Hong Kong would be much more free and that would make China a bit more free. But, yeah, but since 2008-9, pre-Xi Jinping, there was this closing of space within China. You know, the arrest of dissidents and journalists and everything else really intensified then and it's accelerated under Xi Jinping. So I just think... With that political reality, I just can't see how it would ever be possible to get that compromise. So in a way, they've switched to the impossible dream because they know that even a reasonable compromise from their perspective is not possible with this current government and current regime in China. Ben Bland, thanks so much for your time and congratulations on the book. Thanks. Cheers. The book is Generation HK. Seeking Identity in China's Shadow by Ben Bland. It's published by Penguin as part of a special series on Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to the Newslens Radio. Please hit subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts and share the episode with anyone that you think may be interested. For daily news, opinion and analysis on Asia, please check out the Newslens International website and sign up for the daily newsletter. And thanks again to Patty and Steph from Sleepers Awake for the tunes.